Good day to you, brothers, sisters, friends, and new faces. Welcome to Current Events and Christian Expectations. And today, in this podcast, we'll have part two of Why Are There Wars? Today, we'll lead off with 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. And as usual, we'll have several other scriptures that we'll reference and read today, and we'll put those in the overview. So, with the warfare of mankind, past, present, and future, under the influence of the Holy Scriptures, let's just dig right in. Well, good day, everyone. And in the words of the old King James Version, gird up the loins of your mind, because these are subject matters that are somewhat obscure to uh, some people and might be a little difficult. We try and strive to make it as clear as we can. The current event is the war against Ukraine, but it raises the question, why wars in the first place? Uh, Last time we quoted Dr. Todd Johnson about the martyrdoms of uh, Christians down through the centuries. Uh, He also added, uh, which I didn't quote, but part of that quote was, in the 21st century so far, there's at least 2 million Christians, Mm. by his count, who have been martyred. Let's do a brief review so we lead into 2 Corinthians 10. Number one, wars are inevitable. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, talking about uh, his second coming and things occurring before that and continuing up to that. He says to disciples, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed or this must take place. But the end is not yet for a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Mm -hmm. And as Will Durant says, that's basically been the history of the human race Mm -hmm. for thousands of years. Number two. Satan is behind the kingdoms to cause this. For example, last time we looked in Daniel 10, where an angel came uh, from heaven to Daniel to give him an answer to the prayer that Daniel had offered up. The angel explained, it took me 21 days because I was delayed 21 days by the prince of Persia. Mm. An angel being delayed by prince of Persia, obviously the prince of Persia is not a human being. It's a spiritual entity probably a fallen angel of Satan who is involved in the warfare against mankind with Satan. And so uh, he says, I wouldn't have been here yet if it hadn't been for Michael, which is another well-known angel in biblical literature who came and helped me to take on the prince of Persia so I could get to you with this message. And at the end of Daniel 10, when he leaves, he says, we've got to go now. And uh, in fact, the prince of Greece is coming. Mm. Uh, a reference not to Alexander the Great, but again to the spiritual entity on the dark side that will be following the word of Satan of how to manipulate that kingdom of Greece until it falls. And of course, the great comment that we have in Luke chapter 4 in the temptation of Jesus, where Luke says the devil took him, Jesus, up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me, and I'll give it to whom I will. Now that tells us why nation rises against nation and kingdom against nation, kingdom against kingdom, because Satan's behind it. If you then will worship me, and that's what Satan wants out of this, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Number three, man cannot stop wars, for they cannot stop Satan. One of the key chapters in this is Revelation 20 where after all the damage that Satan has done throughout the book of Revelation in this course of this age, Peter says he goes about like a lion, roaring, seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, we find that uh, Jesus has returned, Satan is taken and spiritually wrapped up in a chain, 
and put into the abyss for a thousand years. And after that thousand years is over, he's let loose. And what does he do? He goes on the rampage to make war again against people and especially against the people of God. And then fire comes out of heaven and that's the end of him. He is exiled to the lake of fire. What is the origin of all of this? Why wars? If God created Adam and Eve in peace and upright. Well, man was made in God's image as we looked in Genesis 1. And being in God's image in that context, obviously, as it states, he was made to rule, he and Eve, and have dominion over planet Earth, over the, uh, the plant life, the uh, entire landscape, the geology of it, the animals. They were to rule and have domain over that. And what happens, of course, Satan tempts Eve, there's deceit, and that ruling aspect of the image of God gets perverted and twisted into ruling over other people. Mm. And so wars begin with Cain killing Abel, and soon, as I said last time, it's a lot of Cains killing a lot of Abels at a national level. In Genesis chapter 3, then, God is the one who declares open war, and this war continues, as we have seen, clear up until we get to Revelation chapter 20. He declares war between Satan's people and God's. In Genesis 3.15, uh, he tells the serpent, listen, um, I'm going to put uh, hostility, enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, meaning followers of Satan, followers of her. Eventually, this comes into a seed, ultimately, the Antichrist from Satan. And, of course, the seed of the woman becomes, ultimately, Jesus, Jesus who is the Christ. This war is fought in the invisible realm. God created two worlds when he began creation, the invisible and the visible. Uh, in Colossians 1, Paul says, By him, meaning Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, that's those spiritual powers of Satan in the dark realm. All things were created through him and for him. The wars of the invisible realm are instigated by the one who rules in the invisible realm. Ephesians 2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. So the conclusion of all this is that visible wars are the carnage used to mask his war in the invisible realm against God's people, all others being collateral damage. We saw this in 2 Kings very clearly, where Elisha is surrounded at night by the king of Syria at the city of Dothan. And next morning, there is all those troops and chariots in the visible realm surrounding Elisha and his servant. And his servant's upset and says, this is the end. What's going to happen? And Elisha says, Lord, open his eyes. And when the servant's eyes were open, he could see that the chariots of fire and angels surrounding the earthly, visible chariots of King mm -hmm. Assyria were far more than what the, the King of Assyria has. Greater are those who are with us than are with them. Mm. And so, um, Revelation chapter 12, as we looked at, that's where Satan, pictured as a dragon, is uh, poised to devour the child, the Christ child, since he's born, which in the visible realm we know represents Herod and uh, all of his factions. And um, what happens there? The uh, Herod goes out to kill the Christ child, and the process kills a lot of babies doing that. Mm -hmm. And again, behind him is Satan, who does collateral damage. He makes war against everybody to get the one thing he wants. This is what we find in the Scripture. And so, uh, from Genesis chapter 1, where you have the war against uh, the seed of the woman, which turns out to be Jesus, once uh, Jesus has been resurrected and gone back to glory to rule and reign, um, he takes off after the offspring of the uh, community of believers. That's why in Revelation 12, 17, 
these words we have. Then the dragon became furious with the woman, that is after he's kicked out of heaven by Michael and his angels, and went off to make war, war on the rest of her offspring and those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And of course, as Satan would say it, if others have to die, so what? Mm -hmm. John chapter 8, Jesus says, from the beginning, Satan was a liar and a murderer. So our battle is against Satan and his forces. Now, does our battle in the invisible realm have any bearing on wars of the flesh? Well, preparing the way for the kingdom to come, our spiritual warfare has ramifications for the world to come. So two questions, how shall we fight? And what is the goal of spiritual warfare? We have a very concluding, uh, incisive statement of Paul in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, as Randy reads, listen up. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Okay, so how do we wage war in the invisible realm and the heavenlies against Satan and his crew? Weapons of the Spirit, and they are easy to list. I mean, up there at the top of the list would be the Word of God, uh, weapon of the Spirit, prayer life, mm. um, things of that sort, making your witness when you have the opportunity. Notice the, the phrases that are used in the passage Randy read. Waging war. Waging war. Not according to flesh, but it is a war we wage. Um, the weapons. We have weapons, but they're not of the flesh. They have divine power because it comes through the Holy Spirit. Because as John says, uh, in First John, I believe it's chapter 4, uh, greater is he who is in you than those who are in the world. Mm. Um, referencing back to Second uh, Kings 5, apparently. So we have divine power to destroy strongholds. A stronghold is a place that's basically got a hold really strong on something in the culture, like we've been seeing in some of our podcasts have addressed recently. We destroy arguments, every lofty opinion. And how is that done? Uh, taking every thought captive to obey Christ. In other words, uh, it's a war of words in one sense. It's a, it's a war of proclamation. Mm -hmm. It's a proclamation of the gospel. Every time the gospel is proclaimed, is war against that dark side, which is uh, the bane and the, uh, the, the corrupting influence of everything on planet Earth. Um, we got to conquer strongholds. That is the arguments, the ideology that sustains them. Of course, when it comes to war, what's the ideology? And I've heard it all of my life growing up, and it's been promised time and time again, man will bring peace on Earth. Mm. Man will bring peace on Earth. Human Clearly, the Humanity Bible. shall will out, win out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, here's a quote from one of the commentators I came across, uh, referring to 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Uh, Paul presents the picture of a military operation in enemy territory that seeks to thwart every single hostile plan of battle. And that's what's going on in planet Earth, and we who are Christians are supposed to be engaged in it. The invisible war goes on now. Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis wrote a book or two about the devil and things of that sort. Just one or two. <laughs> yeah. Lewis says, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Mm. And so it goes. The war continues. So we're going to turn now to 1 Corinthians 6 and look at maybe a passage that's not that well known as some of the others in 1 Corinthians, 
But it sure has a lot to say about spiritual warfare and what we're doing now in preparation for the age to come. So let's listen as Randy reads 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Yes, there were. This is um, an in-house argument among Christians. And they were solving their problems with just going to the law courts out in the Gentile world and getting their pound of flesh or whatever it is they wanted. And Paul's point is, of course, you need to solve these things among yourselves. You need to come to agreement. We talked about um, uh, the just war theory. Uh, one of these things was about the rules of engagement. And Paul is here presenting them with rules of engagement. Mm -hmm. You must submit. Submit to the rules of engagement. You don't go to the world to solve your Christian problems. You work with one another in a peaceable way to come to a conclusion, a solution. Submission to the rules of engagement. Parties refusing to submit is what brings about wars. It's one thing to end war, and it's another to keep the peace. And peace is the heart of spiritual warfare. I, mean, I know we use weapons of war and struggles and wrestling and all that, but as we will see, it's still all about doing this in order for peace to reign. Satan wages war against the peace of the church. As Randy just read in 2 Corinthians 10, uh, you know, he does these things, and uh, we've got to uh, be ready for the dark side. So he wages war against the peace of the church and therefore the world. Back in Revelation 12, when he is thrown out of heaven, no longer access to God to denounce Christians and to slander them because Jesus now rules from heaven, uh, the voice is heard after Satan is thrown out with his angels. Woe to you, O earth and sea! The devil has come down to you in great wrath, for he knows his time is short. The devil has come down to you, earth and sea. So it's, it's war everywhere. Mm -hmm. But it is especially against the people of God and the followers who came forth from the woman who obey Jesus and keep his commandments. Well, what do we need in these things? We need to be armored up. So Randy's going to read a passage from Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 15. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. All right. We need all the armor for the battle against the schemes of Satan. Satan has many schemes, not just one scheme. He has a lot of schemes. And in order to fight this spiritual warfare, uh, it's not enough just to have the shield. It's not enough just to have the helmet. Not enough just to have the breastplate. Got to have it all. You got to have all those things as well. Um, Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, on occasion, of course, obviously, Christians do engage in something like that now and then as, as deemed necessary. What he's saying is our primary fight is not in the visible realm. Mm. Our primary fight is in the invisible realm, in the heavenlies. And our primary opponent is in the invisible realm. Uh, Paul goes on there to talk about re uh, 
wrestling against and fighting against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and those in spiritual darkness, forces of evil, in heavenly places, which is the invisible realm. Why is it called heavenly? Because originally everything was heavenly. Mm -hmm. From heaven to earth and everything in between, that's the heavenly realm, and it was heavenly. It's still called that. It's just been taken over by Satan. God has granted that, but it's going to come to an end. And keep in mind, when we're doing this kind of spiritual warfare against spiritual entities, the evil, the evil one and all of his helpers, we're on the side of the angels. People often say, what's it mean to be on the side of the angels? That means one thing, to be engaged in warfare in the invisible realm. And so we take our stand. That word stand throughout that whole chapter is used, I think, three different times. Uh, Seven aspects. Uh, Take our stand and put on truth, righteousness, and then notice this, the gospel of peace, your feet being readied with the gospel of peace. We're engaged in warfare, spiritual warfare, in the invisible realm against Satan, but it's all about peace. It's all about why, because that's what the new world is going to be about when Jesus comes and rules. It will be a place of peace, or as Peter says in Second chapter 3, we look for a new heavens and new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Things will be right, and so we're in training now for that kind of assignment later. Uh, We have to have the shield of faith for flaming darts. If you ever had certain thoughts fly through your mind and say, my Lord, why did I think about that? Why did that come come from? That's a flaming dart. And so you got to put up the shield of faith and dismiss it. Helmet of salvation, you know, because how we think is important. Um, Sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, another powerful weapon. And then Paul says, praying at the end of that, praying, 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 persevering in prayer. So, this is important. The world doesn't practice submission to God or to his will, but to Satan's. We're the ones who are doing the warfare against Satan, not the world, and that's why wars continue and one day will end. Here's a passage from Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, showing the prominence and the pervasive influence of Satan in the invisible realm. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So there is the work of Satan, and here you know why, reading this passage, there are wars, rumors of wars in kingdom against kingdom and nation against nation. The world is in a spiritual mess, a spiritual bind, a darkness. Well, back in 1 Corinthians 6.1, Paul says, you know, settle your own affairs, submit. The first rule of engagement for Christians in spiritual war is to be submitted to doing it God's way, not to having somebody else solve the problem for us. Mm. And practicing that in the local church to bring peace is one of the things we should do, and we're supposed to have on the, uh, the footwear of peace anyway. So, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 6, 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Yes. How often have you heard that somewhere in a sermon or elsewhere? Mm. Don't you know? Paul says, don't you know? In other words, this is knowledge you should have as Christians. It's basic The saints will judge the world, rule the world, reign with Christ. 
Uh, the judgments we will render in the world to come will be stupendous compared to the trivial matters to be judged in this world. Now we say, oh, yeah, but really solving a church problem is comparable to being able to rule in the next world? Let's remember what Jesus says in a couple places in Luke that apply here. First one is in Luke 16.10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. There you go. Submission to the rules of engagement in the local church. You solve problems in-house because this is how peace is formed and worked out. But to bring it home to this whole matter of ruling... There's a good one also in Luke, Luke 19, 17, and this is his parable of the, the talents given to the three men. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. There you go. The coming age, and it's put in uh, a picture of being ruling over people, making judgments, and of course, in order to have peace, to maintain peace, to increase the peace, because that's what the gospel is all about. Now, this idea from 1 Corinthians 6, 2, don't you, know, don't you know that the saints will judge? We can say judge, rule, reign with the world, reign with Christ over the world. Where did he get this since he says, don't you know? Well, we'll look at just uh, three different places uh, in the time we have. The first one is a section of scripture we quoted, or Randy did actually, back on the last broadcast, Isaiah chapter 2, and we just want to look at verse 4. Yeah, I love this verse. And he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Yeah, God will be involved in this just as Christ will, but so will we. You can see that in the chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation where Jesus twice makes reference to uh, the saints overcoming and sitting down on the throne and reigning with him over the nations. That's the words he uses. So here again, in the world to come, it's all problems are not solved, but we're no longer at war. We're working toward peace of all kinds, and the nations realize that, people realize that. And so we will be working at the, as agents of the Lord to bring about judgments for these people. Now here's another passage which leads into that, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people's nation languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. All right. The night visions of someone like the Son of Man, that's Jesus as the Son of Man, a phrase that he uses here from Daniel when he's uh, confronted by the Sanhedrin on the uh, day and night of his uh, crucifixion. He comes to the Ancient of Days, who is the Father, and he receives a kingdom and to rule over all the nations, tongues, and, and peoples. Clearly, that corresponds when you get to Revelation chapter 11. You have that great verse, verse 15, where the cry goes out, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of his Lord and of his Christ, and he shall rule forever and ever. Now, if we drop down to Daniel 7, verse 27, we see also how these saints are included in this. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. 
the kingdom of the Most High given to the saints, mm. not to Satan, but to the saints. This is another place where Paul gets this concept. Don't you know that we will judge the world? And this corresponds, of course, to Satan going down into the abyss and later to the lake of fire in Revelation 20. And Revelation 20 talks about those who are resurrected with Jesus and to reign with him and to be priests as well for a thousand years. In conclusion, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6.3, and this really brings it home for our subject on angels, spiritual warfare, the visible war, the invisible war, and all of that. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Matters pertaining to this life, meaning that when we judge angels, that's in the next, next life, life, the kingdom to come, the world to come. Angels who now carry out God's missions, assignments, judgments, will serve Christians, us, who will do the judging for peace and the reigning with Jesus and things of that nature. Let's see how this comes together in the book of Hebrews. Rain is going to read Hebrews 1, 13 and 14. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Right. Uh, the first chapter is arguing that Christ is greater than angels. That's one of the themes of Hebrews. He's greater than angels, greater than Moses, greater than priesthood. And mm -hmm. these two verses, he says uh, he's greater than angels because God never said to an angel, sit on my throne, you know, all of that. But he goes on and says, angels are ministering spirits, flames of fire, uh, to uh, serve those who are to inherit salvation. Now, the word inherit means future, and that's the salvation which is our conclusion. When Jesus returns, we inherit the salvation to come. At that time, angels will be serving us. Mm. Now, how does this work out? Remember, originally, there were no chapters or verses in the books of the New Testament. So don't think that we're going to another chapter and a different theme. It's the same theme, and you'll see that when we get down to verse 5. But let's move on to Hebrews chapter 2 and read the first five verses there and pay close attention to verse 5. Randy? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Okay, so once we go from chapter 1, the end of that with verses 13 and 14, where we uh, are to inherit salvation, and angels' purpose will be to serve those of us who inherit that salvation. He then, for the next few verses, says, but make sure you're persevering. Make sure you're not going to drift away. You want to be there when this happens. And he gives reasons for doing that. And then when he comes to verse 5, he says these words. Can you read those again, Randy? For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Not to angels he subjected the world to come, but to who? To us, to the us. saints. Exactly yeah. what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 6. Angels aren't going to be ruling. Uh, we will be, and angels will be assisting and serving us. In fact, it's very interesting. If you go ahead and read the rest of chapter 2, uh, the author follows with a quote from Psalm 8, 
which refers to the rule of man, that God had put everything under the feet of man to rule over earth, which mm -hmm. again ties into the world to come where we will be ruling. Um, so why are there wars? Because from the beginning, man was created to rule. Satan took advantage of that with deception, and man has been trying to rule man ever since. Jesus put an end to Satan with the cross. That's where the war was won. He will finally be put to to, uh, to rest in a matter of speaking with his battles when uh, in the book of Revelation, when Jesus returns. And we, in turn, who are Christians, need to be involved in understanding of spiritual warfare now, no matter how trivial it may seem, because that is preparing us for the world to come where we will be given awesome assignments of helping the world maintain the peace. Mm. So armor up, people. <laughs> well, thanks, Jim. You've given us a lot to think about, and I'm sure there might be some questions or comments about it. And we'd love to hear those questions and comments from you. Please send your questions and comments to eventsandexpectations at gmail.com. That's the word events, the word and, the word expectations at gmail.com. And we'll use your question or comment where possible, and we will always answer you. This has been Current Events and Christian Expectations. And until next time, keep looking up.